Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. It's about people. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Cassini Nazir. Cassini is a designer of conversations, curriculum, and interfaces. He's a clinical associate professor in New College at the University of North Texas, where he teaches classes in design thinking and interaction design. Prior to joining UNT, he taught at the University of Texas at Dallas, where he was founding director of the ATEC Usability Lab, which fosters collaborative research with community partners and offers experiential learning to students. While at UT Dallas, he was director of design for the Art Sci Lab a transdisciplinary research lab helping the art, science, and technology communities by pursuing initiatives of societal urgency and cultural timelessness. We discuss the importance of cross-disciplinary collaboration and intentionality in good design, covering topics like the Heilmeier Catechism and Exformation. We dig into advice and mentorship. I was moved by a story Cassini shares about his father that serves as a reminder of leading by example, and at the end of the day, it's about people. It was an honor having Cassini on the podcast. I thank him for his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. Cassini, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. If you don't mind, uh, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Cassini Nazir. I always say that's Cassini, like the space probe that crashed into uh, Jupiter in 2017, or the fashion designer. Um, and I, I describe myself as a designer of conversations, curricula, and interfaces. Um, I'm a design educator at the University of North Texas, where I teach uh, classes in design thinking. Uh, for about 10 years, I taught at UT Dallas, University of Texas at Dallas, and I taught interaction design there. And uh, I've done a lot of collaborations with industry partners. Uh, I've worked with a bunch of academic colleagues from uh, the sciences. My, uh, I ran a lab for about five years. My partner in crime was an astrophysicist uh, who literally put rockets into space. Uh, Roger Molina is his name. His father was one of the seven people who founded NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. So um, conversations are really important whenever a designer is collaborating. And you know, I learned that whenever I say the word prototype, uh, I mean quick, fast, dirty. When a NASA trained scientist talks about prototype, it ain't cheap, <laughs> it ain't fast, right. and it's a physical thing. It ain't made out of paper. Um, so you know, that, that, that experience taught me a lot about uh, how words matter and not to make assumptions about specific things and to, to sort of look with multiple perspectives on things. Great, thanks. And how did you end up in the design space? Oh boy, that's a that's a tricky question. You know, when I was a young child, I loved to draw. And actually, I, I made friends by drawing portraits for people. So uh, sort of photorealistic portraits. And I always thought that I would go off to art school. 
And in high school, I, I couldn't tell you the difference between art and design. You know, now I know there is a, there is a tremendous amount of overlap, but there's also a, a tremendous amount of differences between uh, what artists do and what designers do. Um, but I started, uh, I actually got into Rhode Island School of Design. I never went because of cost. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I ended up um, uh, getting an English degree and an economics degree. And I learned a lot of different things along the way. While I was doing my English degree, um, I asked a teacher who had taught Greek in the past if he would do that again. The class was full because I talked some colleagues into, into staying beyond census day. And by the end of the semester, there was three of us in, in the class. By the end of the next semester, there was just me. So it was one-on-one -on -one, uh, reading Greek uh, at, at, at the undergraduate level with a faculty member. And so I started actually a, a degree in classics down at UT Austin in, in Greek and Latin. I ended up leaving because, as, as you well know, there's not many people who hire for that. Um, ended up getting my Master of Fine Arts MFA. Uh, and that's when I began, not too long after that, I began teaching. So that, that kind of brings us up to uh, somewhat up to now. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm curious about the the uh, two bachelor's degrees, literature and economics. Feeling that those are are uh, really engaging both left and and right brain thinking. Uh, what was what was your interest in economics? You know, I I have to thank my father for pushing me towards something more concrete. He he absolutely wanted me to do English, uh, and and even wanted me to do art as well. Again, it was just a matter of affording the cost of, of the art degree. But for, for English, it was really making sure that, you know, I, I, I balance the abstract sort of notion of an English degree with the concrete skills of what economics does. And let me tell you, Thomas Carlyle, very famous economic, uh, economist, talks about uh, economy the field of study being the dismal science. That's <laughs> exactly my feeling <laughs> towards it. Uh, it was it was not a not necessarily an enjoyable time. I learned a lot, um, but you know I, I I think lastly, everyday designers do what uh, the field of economics does, which is it, it, I think the classical definition is um, what is it allocating scarce resources amongst competing objectives to obtain a common goal. That sounds a tremendous a lot like design, you know? And scarce resources, common goal, right? It's, it's what we do. Yeah, that's, that's great. I, uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, if, if I'd share this with you, but uh, when I started my undergrad, I was actually a double major when I started and it was uh, broadcast and film and pre-dentistry. So, because oh, wow. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into media or if I wanted to be an orthodontist. And along the way, I think some of the things that the uh, you know, a, a good good degree does is it also starts to show you other like through requirements of the communication discipline. I just kind of fell fell into uh, a love of kind of shared meaning. How do people communicate? How is meaning negotiated positively and negatively? And and uh, yeah, I had a lot of lot of fun with it. So I actually, didn't become an orthodontist and didn't become a filmmaker. <laughs> I, I think LinkedIn needs to have sort of those alternative bios, right? Because those things shape who you are today. 
and they inform your practice. Um, it's not many designers, it's not sort of a inexorable push towards, oh, I'm going to be a designer. Uh, right. I think some of the best designers are those with like broad or even eclectic sort of backgrounds as well. Yeah, it's funny because when I was, when I was in school, I, I didn't even know of the discipline of design. And, and then I fell into kind of early web work before there were standards and uh, was using more audience-based principles from communication. And, you know, then it, it matured. And I love that we have standards now. It's funny because there, there was, I think if my timing's right, my great, that's like right when the, uh, like I was an undergrad, right as the World Wide Web is kind of just even starting to formalize. Like I remember when AOL moved to the web to yeah. be accessible uh, via the World Wide Web, uh, right? Before it was just this internet enabled application on a desktop, right? We did, <laughs> didn't have smartphones, all those things that we take for granted now, but yeah, different, different time. But I, I do appreciate that just being in a kind of a nascent emerging discipline and trying to wrangle it a little bit. We were a simple people back then, weren't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, if you don't, one of the things I wanted to dig into, as you mentioned too, is the, the uh, it was the art sci lab. Is that the, the collaboration? So you were working with astrophysicists? Yeah, so we, we, this was a research lab and it still is a research lab at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, and I was co-director with Roger Molina for that lab. And we worked with uh, many different scientific disciplines, uh, brain scientists, nanoscientists, um, researchers from all spectrums. And the lab actually existed to sustain collaborations of projects that could only be done when artists and designers collaborate with scientists and researchers. And one of the things, you know, you hear a lot about collaboration or innovation that collaboration leads to innovation. And, you know, we had many conversations with scientists that collaboration is not a virtue in and of itself. You know, it doesn't necessarily lead to better things. And we were very specific about the types of projects that we work on and intentional about it. Um, there's a catechism, it, it, uh, quote, I'm, I'm using air quotes here yeah. <laughs> uh, for those who are listening, um, from I think the uh, uh, DARPA, uh, founder, it's called the Heilmeier Catechism, and we, we would go through this Heilmeier Catechism that asks five simple, five or six simple questions. Of, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Why is it significant? Um, and we would tack on that last question: Why do we need to do this together? Which is a, an important question to ask when collaborating. What is? In some cases, there is a bit of serendipity that happens along the way that you didn't know, you couldn't have maybe planned for, um, but you know, you you can plan for serendipity. To, to some degree, you can create space at least for it. Right. So. Yeah, I, and what I like about that that checklist to me what reinforces uh, power of good design is the intentionality, is is getting explicit, being intentional, and getting to even a a shared language with people on and and shared expectation of outcome, uh, which which I think it's interesting for me on the business side when you're working with clients, or at least mine is. It's hard sometimes when you ask those very intentional, very specific questions, because I think sometimes it makes people feel like they don't know, and there's a discomfort there, uh, especially early in a process. But you know, the 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 strength of being on on point 
and being intentional. So I, I really appreciate that. And, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Can you remind what, what the, uh, uh, the kind of that, that guiding system you were using? It's, it's called the Heilmeier Catechism. I'm, I'm just Googling it to make sure that I have the questions in the um, correct order. Uh, and yeah, it's DARPA still, I'm, I'm on the DARPA link um, right here. This was from George Heilmeier, who is, I guess, DARPA director, 75 to 77. Uh, and, and very simple questions. What are you trying to do? Articulate your objectives using absolutely no jargon. <laughs> That's hard for designers to do in, in some cases. By the way, I think the words user and experience could be considered jargon. Um, right. Does the average individual talk about uh, user experience? How's it done today? What are the limits of the current practice? What's new in your approach? Why do you think it will be successful? Who cares? <laughs> uh, what are the risks? How much will it cost? How long will it take? And what are the midterm and final exams to check in for success? And uh, we worked on a DARPA-funded project, actually, looking at a, a large data set of brain data, fMRI data, functional magnetic resonance imaging data. And we sonified that data, which means to apply meaningful sounds to the data. So you could hear how the brain ages over time and how the connections between systems in the brain age and, and you could you could listen to the differences. People may not necessarily know the meaning or necessarily know which which parts of the brain are being um, uh, utilized by that sonification. But you could listen to to the brain aging, which w was really the notion of exformation, right? This was yeah. Uh, the, I think how we got together. Um, exformation is to on the one hand. Um, explicitly di discard certain types of information. So in this case, sonification tries to let your ears do the driving rather than your eyes. Um, you know, if you're using a Geiger counter, yeah, right. letting your ears do the guiding, not necessarily your eyes, right? Your ears gonna notice it first before maybe your eyeballs. Um, and, uh, or, or like a starter's pistol, right? You don't, we don't have a green, yellow, red for um, uh, for races, or a green, yellow, yellow, red light for races, because you know, your ear notice that, notices that before your eyeball does. Um, and, and I think in many cases, there's so much to be explored for our human senses beyond our, our, our visual sense. Uh, yeah, I like that, because I feel like, too, that um, it, it opens a new palette for uh, patterns that might emerge, so different ways to understand it as well. Like you said, maybe you don't know right away, but there's these different different noises, different sounds, and then after a while, you might see these patterns emerge over time. So what, one of the ideas that we had, um, this is an idea from a, a colleague of mine, Scott Gresham Lancaster, was let's say you like listening to Led Zeppelin, and you know, you know Led Zeppelin for you, know, you can sing all the lyrics. You know, you you know how how the how the music goes. And um, let's say you work at a nuclear facility where it's important that you keep track of the the, uh, of the uh, machines that are uh, usually beeping. This is also true in a hospital setting. Many nurses will come home, depending on what part of the hospital you work in. And you know they'll still be somewhat traumatized by the audio 
um, interference that's happening from rooms. Imagine you could listen to a song and the, the notion of exformation would change the rate of that song. Let's say Robert Plant's voice goes a little higher uh, just than normal in order to indicate to you that, hey, there's, there's something wrong. Otherwise, you know, you're enjoying your music. It, it sort of flips this notion of, let's just hear the, the beeps all the time to let me enjoy the experience that I'm having and let's, let's uh, wrap this experience around something that's unique to me uh, as, a, as a listener. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and too, that's the, the nurse example for, for folks working in, in hospitals uh, it's it's for me an interesting thing about a, an ecosystem in design because it's there's so many different machines and each one has an alert right? and and usually when those are designed those are designed kind of just almost in a silo right this thing works and here is when we'll tr but then realizing that it's amongst an array of machines that might be in a room and not only for the the patient or the nurse right that all of the these beeps, noises, alerts, buzzing that aren't natural too, right? They're 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 unnatural. And so just thinking about that barrage of those, how how that must be fatiguing. So I, I yeah, I like that I like that idea that what if we had something that you're more comfortable with? Uh, yeah. and then and then when there is some it it still will be like, you know, it'll violate that pattern so you recognize it, but it's not a continuous uh, kind of beeping. That's the other thing. I love when some, it, they're just beeping to let you know that it's on too. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That, Hey, nothing's wrong. I'm just beeping at you. Right. right. It's, it's like constantly waving at somebody <laughs> just to say, Hey, I'm here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> Not stopping the way. <laughs> you and know, it's, it's what you described there too. My, uh, in one of my classes, they just watched Doug Dietz, uh, who I think still works at GE. Uh, he, the, 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 there's many videos on Doug Dietz. Uh, I think my students watched his TED uh, video uh, where he talks about the MRI machine, going back to, to MRIs, which as, as you know, right, you put your head into the small space, there's this, it's like this constant drilling sound in order to sort of scan your brain. And you have to sit still there for, you know, anywhere from at least 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, depending on, on the quality of the MRI machine. And Doug Dietz talks about how, you know, what is that experience like for a young child going in and seeing this terrifying machine that looks like it's gonna swallow my head and I've gotta sit still. Uh, you know, just thinking through what do those sounds mean for even the youngest of us who, uh, when, when you're in a hospital, it's already a, a jarring experience. Right. Let alone going. And uh, going back to your collaboration uh, with the the Art Sci Lab, one of the one of the things too that was reminding me um, from the the science and kind of art perspective is a uh, long time ago I used to do a lot of work in the knowledge management space. Uh, but are you are you familiar with Dorothy Leonard's Wellsprings of Knowledge? No, I'm I'm not. Tell, so, tell me a little bit about it. I uh, I be, and I believe she. Um, I believe she was kind of coming out of um, uh, um, kind of the the innovation, like diffusion of innovation work. But uh, this was late '90s, early 2000s, if I'm getting my timing right. 
But a case study she had when Nissan was making some big advances in the marketplace, uh, I believe they called it their, their uh, hippie nerd hiring process, where they would, they would pair an engineer and a designer. And uh, the designer to push the boundaries artistically, uh, to challenge the engineer, and then the engineer also to challenge the artist on you know, where, where we need structure, why, you know, why these things exist, but really trying to get out of uh, an, uh, something that might over-index on art or engineering. And so I always thought that was kind of an interesting pairing. And what you're describing is very common. Um, there are artists in residence that, um, so Bell Labs has had famous artists in residence. Uh, I think IBM still does artists in residence. Um, uh, CERN in Switzerland, yeah, uh, artists in residence. You know, and I, I believe NASA still does artists in residence. So the, this idea of crossing disciplines—it's—it's it's sort of a false dichotomy, arts and sciences—and mm -hmm. uh, it's really modes of thinking that we all engage in, uh, just at, at different points in time. Whether or not you're a designer, you you that you will find value in thinking like a, a scientist, right? You can align the observation hypothesis. Oh, oh boy. Um. <laughs> That's something, then conclusion. Uh, um, evaluation, uh, testing phase to, to, you know, roughly parallels the design process, right? The, the yeah. Stanford design process begins with empathize, uh, the double diamond begins with sort of opening yourself up uh, as well. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, it's, it's not like those two modes of inquiry are uh, so dissimilar. Um, you know, Leonardo is probably the most famous person who transcends those two disciplines. And, and in, in Italian, disegno really implies both sort of this artistic quality that, that we tend to think of or the, the public tends to think of with designers. But it also implies an engineering perspective. Like th these two things are not separate from one another. And it's, it's, you know, in, it's embedded in the language that, that these two things are sort of, you know, one in the same, two sides of the coin. I love, yeah, I love that. Thanks. Uh, one, of, one of my closest friends, so we, we, uh, we, we met in high school and then we both attended undergrad at the University of Iowa. And our, our life paths have brought us back to Iowa City. And he, he's a microbiology and virology researcher. So his PhD was in coronavirology, and he you know, works on uh, a lot of T-cell related uh, behavior. And before COVID, <laughs> uh, many Fridays, he and I would gather uh, at, at uh, you know, one, of the, one of the bars in Iowa City and have a couple beers. And we, a lot of what we would talk about is parallels between good scientific inquiry and good design and the importance of asking uh, interesting, good, relevant questions. And we would also talk about like, uh, you know, challenges of um, trying to help designers be better designers. And uh, they're very similar to helping uh, PhD candidates and postdocs be better researchers. And we would dig into uh, a lot of uh, processes and also um, looking at ways that we also might collaborate on campus back to kind of the knowledge management silos. Any college campus, like from a per capita perspective, you have some of the brightest people densely populated, but they rarely cross over into like another, another discipline. So 
it's one one of my kind of uh, passion projects that I want to work on is starting to look at cro- cross uh, cross college cross department uh, uh, ideas, you know, on, on solving complex w- wicked problems. Yeah, so where I teach currently uh, at University of North Texas, I I teach in a satellite campus off of the main campus, which is Denton, Texas. I teach in Frisco. And what we set up in Frisco is primarily a project or problem-based learning program. I don't necessarily like the word problem-based because you, know, you, you then think, oh, the, everything out there is something that I need to fix, right? Project is different. Um, yeah. It doesn't necessarily imply that there's a problem to solve. But an issue or a situation is sort of non-polarity as opposed to problem, right? If, right, if I say right. that, you're the problem in this podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that implies something that, that I don't want to don't want to imply, right? Um, and so in, in PBL, pro- project or problem-based learning, uh, students have to take on those multiple perspectives. You know, and they have to encounter from, um, from the get-go individuals who think differently, who use the same words but mean different things. Uh, and it's it's more a reflection of the real world, if, if I can use that. Uh, right, right. I, I should, I'm flapping myself on the hand. I don't like to use that phrase. Um, but it's more a reflection of how people outside of the university uh, engage, right? It's something that you, you have to do. And it's tremendously hard. It's tremendously hard to teach that. It's so much easier to teach within our disciplines than it is to teach how to have conversations with individuals outside of their discipline. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the problem almost tying back to what you said early is how problem can be jargon. Cause when I feel like with designers, it's, it's not a charged term or we're even encouraged to fall in love with the problem, right? That it might even have a, a positive aspect to it. Uh, but that's what I, I share with, with folks. It's, it's interesting. So, I, when I'm working with non-designers, I try to say challenge or opportunity, right? So what's the challenge or opportunity space, right? As we're trying to understand it, because when you label it a problem, it already, and I hadn't even thought, I really appreciate that notion that, yeah, it's to be solved because especially in business, most people have kind of made their career solving problems, fixing things. And that design, so when you label, label it as a problem, it already seems like uh, you better, you better move quickly on the solution. Yeah, and, and there are there are many problems to be solved in the world right now. We can list a lot of them and, and depress all, yeah. our, all of the listeners. But you know, a situation is, is very different. I'm thinking of uh, Patricia Moore, who was an industrial designer, and her famous statement is, um, "I was 85 when I was 26," and she dressed up as a 85 year old woman when she was 26, I think she worked for Raymond Lowy. Raymond Lowy and, and crew sort of plucked her. Um, and you know, for about two to three years, she went disguised as an 85 year old woman. Uh, and you know, it had a tremendous amount of resilience and um, um, uh, tenacity to, to do this. She ended up getting beat up in New York uh, as an 85 year old woman. To this day, she can't have children because of that experience. Oh. And Patricia Moore is a, a, you know, one of the people who uh, has given us 
has given us sort of the field of universal design, right? The notion that we should design for all, and and what a what a model of that, right? There's that that I can step into this space and try to understand people, and and sometimes I think as designers we we convince ourselves that we understand it because it's contained. What I think Patricia Moore it, she wrote a book called Disguise, which is uh, absolutely thrilling. What I think we as designers have to encounter, I always tell my students, you know, have you gotten to the oh shit moment where you're like, this thing is larger than I thought, right? It's like, you know, you're pulling out a ball of yarn and you realize that, hey, this isn't yarn. This is, this is like a huge tapestry that I just wasn't looking at. Like I needed to look up and see the entire thing. I just saw the thread there that I was pulling at. And, you know, until, until we engage with that moment that this thing is much larger, you know, we, we're not really solving the, the, and I shouldn't use that word, we're not really addressing the, the larger issues or situation where we're really trying to sort of pluck, um, uh, pluck weeds from the ground, you know, to, to mix a metaphor. I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, no, and, and what you're saying, it, it, it parallels so much with kind of work in, uh, you know, kind of the, um, collaborative sense-making space or sense-making and system dynamics too is right that um, what makes truly wicked problems right Des designing an app in a, a shopping cart isn't a wicked problem right it's it, it's just not a wicked problem but when truly wicked problems right where these are complex adaptive systems so like you said even even the notion of pulling on something is changing things around it right and so that uh, both the science and art of, of choosing your target space or uh, for lack of better terms, your boundaries, here's what we wanna focus on now. And I think for, for my designers, it was always so that they could answer a question, why or so that. We're drawing this boundary here, uh, right? Because, because we believe this is contained, because we believe this won't have, uh, adversely impact these other areas, but these complex problems, even just the notion of addressing them, because, you know, it, it makes it different as soon as you start to work on it. And it's, it's both something I find uh, uh, rewarding, energizing, and also <laughs> at times deeply fatiguing, I guess, depending on what phase of a project I'm in. Yeah, I, I think it's, it, it reminds us to be humble as designers as we go in that, you know, it's, it's not always our problem. It, it's not, al not always our um, purview to solve either. You know, I, I think the, the, there's a book called The Power of Positive Deviance, which is an unfortunate title, I yeah. think. Uh, it, it's really about standard deviations, but, but it talks about how many folks go into communities and try to solve problems for the community. And it, it gives case studies along the way where the authors have gone into communities and found people who helped to solve, helped to address the problems within the communities. And what they were really were trying to do was find ways to scale people who have already addressed the concerns. How can you do that across the board? This is very different than, than and you can see that I'm trying to be specific in my language of solving right. problems versus enabling, and not even enabling solutions, yeah. but enabling. Uh, individuals to address the, the concerns. Um, in many ways, you know, the designer is, what the designer does, I think at the end of a project, if they do it successfully, is that like, you know, they've, risk, they've written in chalk on the ground, 
their their work. And by the time they're done, you know, particularly in community work, it, they're they're erasing the chalk, you know, to to let the individuals work on that together, uh, which is much more challenging than creating an interface. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know when we're talking about collaboration a little bit as well, and and these challenges, uh, uh, friend of mine Nick Scapatici from from Tellart, and they started even their you know their name is based on telling stories through art. So as a design firm, and they they focus on uh, a lot of experience design elements. But uh, you know he he and I were having a conversation a while back about the need for collaboration at scale. Uh, it that you know early in our career if you had if you had a software engineer and a designer or even we we talked about you know the the Nissan hippie nerd that was that was kind of radical collaboration right but now these problems how do you how do you collaborate at scale because some of these issues you know who are the policy experts who are the legal experts you know who are the material design experts that you're going to have to bring in and play well in, the, in, in some form of a sandbox together. And so I'm also still looking at how, how do you help just really talented people play well together uh, as, as a big challenge for, for advancing design and community? That's a, that's a great question that I don't know that I have a, a, a good answer for. Um, I think that there's, there are good practices with that. Humility, respect for one another, right? clear goals, uh, in some cases, clear roles and responsibilities. But I, I think a lot of that's constructed along the way. And as the team constructs it together, you, you uh, come to rely on each other. Now, that sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, right. uh, yep. I'll admit. But, you know, I, I, I do think that over-engineering, in some cases, these things, particularly with teams, um, can, can over-determine outcomes. And in, in many cases, bias us towards outcomes that we're just comfortable with. This is what the team is comfortable with, rather than maybe having some creative friction that uh, is necessary in order to push a, a, um, a better outcome, or maybe even a, a, a third alternative that, that was unexpected, uh, pushing up forward. It's, it's a challenge. Yeah, yeah, especially you mentioned the double diamond too, right? And even on like kind of our problem definition, like right problem, right solution, but on the problem side, open ourselves up, being divergent, right? And being able to analyze these different things, bring in different perspectives to that. You know, it's, I find that kind of like for me, kind of threading that with some of your uh, exformation talk and then also back into the sciences where kind of deductive reasoning seems to be the most disciplined, right? That's, that's the disciplined mind. But then we talk about, as designers, a lot of times we'll talk about inductive, right? But yeah. then also the notion of abductive of, of what could be, right? But then how do we test it? And that's where I, I love, can we get people that are really good at divergent and good at kind of convergent thinking? So um, that that's, I think, one, one of the big things that I've, I've tried to tell my innovation students is, and this is hard, I think, for students, especially as they get ready for a test, right? But outside of your tests, there, there's rarely a right, wrong answer. 
it's more of like in, in these in these problems how much how might we optimize right and what and what is it that we want to optimize and why do we believe that's important right but stepping through those that doesn't sound fun and and those are harder things to reward on a business side right if you solved a problem, <laughs> hey, you know, you you made you made our finance process four percent more efficient. Okay, here's your bonus, right? Versus, here was this really gnarly thing that we couldn't even measure, but now we have an approach and we're trying to optimize and test. It's I think it's hard for design and innovation students too that you know, against different disciplines, it, it's hard to get absolute right answers in the real world. What you're describing is I, I I'll often tell students whenever they come into a program that you I, I think inherently want and have been used to particularly you're here in the American educational system turn by turn directions <laughs> you want a map right what do I need to do now in order to do the thing how much points is that worth and then you know um, how can I be the most efficient about this a map is really about efficiency and I, slowly over time, if, if educators do their job well, it, that map be, becomes a secondary tool to the compass, right? What is my true north of what am I interested in? What are the things that I value? What's important to me? What won't I sacrifice? Uh, and that, that true north is so much more important than the compass, which, or excuse me, that the compass is so much important than the map, which is very much an efficiency mindset. Because you know the, the design process is supremely messy if you do it correctly, right? We we tell in the telling of the tale after the fact it looks like you know we're magicians conjuring up this wonderful thing uh, because of our level of skill, but you know it, it's it's very messy. We we have modes that that we use and tools and and, and techniques, but if you do it right, you know it's it's going to be messy. And and I think getting students comfortable with that that sort of messiness is important just one last thing i'll, I'll often to to try to wean students off this notion of something being right i i will um I'll, I'll usually early on bring in candy for students and if the student gets a question wrong or you know has a good try but it's, it's not quite you know the, the on, on target i'll reward those students because in many cases, they've spent 12 years being rewarded only by doing things right, checking the answer that was prescribed. Yep. And in some way, I'm trying to inveigh against that and say, you know what, you need to get things wrong. You, you need to be able to risk and try because the design is inherently risky and you're not doing it well enough if, if you're not taking the risk. Yeah, and that, that um uh, I, I love that. I might steal that from you because uh, with, my, with my innovation students, to, it's trying to convince them one of the biggest cultural challenges for innovation in organizations is it's, you know, the large companies that want sustainable innovation are also, they're mature and kind of at the top of their S-curve. Yeah, um, it's about efficiency. It is about, um, uh, you know, you know, the, both the, the consistency and efficiency are the biggest things, right, to drive that predictability. And so failure is very difficult, right? And, uh, you know, I, I, I encourage my students, you know, the, the notion that fail, fail fast so you can learn quickly. If you keep making the same mistake, you're not going to have a job. But, yeah, that, but that culture, too, is where, where do we have safe spaces for failure? And without that risk-taking, I feel that's, that's where you'll just get mediocrity, right? It's like then people are just – 
well, what's the least offensive thing I can do here rather than what might be a, a, a truly innovative approach? And in many cases, with, with regard to higher education, I think students are just looking for how do they want me to respond to this question? What, what are the words that I need to parrot back to you yeah. so that you give me the grade? It's, it's like this, this bargain that we're engaging in rather than an actual learning and, and discovery. Um, I'll, I'll often give my students bonus questions on, on discussion, not to really, I, I haven't awarded any points so far for my bonus questions uh, to this day. And it, it's really just to see who will answer and how will they answer. Yeah. And um, helping them to, to see themselves and to, to sort of craft uh, their future. So as uh, kind of wearing your design hat yourself, um, sometimes I'd like to dig in with folks on, uh, do you ever feel stuck? And what tips or advice do you have for getting unstuck? Oh, man, I, I don't know that I, <laughs> that I have uh, sort of universal answers for that. Um, the, the two biggest things for me are spending time with family and friends, uh, which I think is common for everybody. Uh, in a genuine way, like literally putting the technology down. I have to do that in order to make sure that I'm present wherever I am. Um, I, I remember going to England a couple of years back and it, seemed, it was in vogue at the time to everybody put their uh, cell phones in the middle of the table if you're out at dinner, obviously pre-COVID. Yeah. Uh, and whoever looked at their phone first paid for dinner for everybody. Now imagine, uh, <laughs> imagine that if, if, if that was the case, right? And it was it was a a a uh, sort of sort of a social contract for everybody at the table to say, you know, let's be present. If if you have kids, obviously there are um, maybe some 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 outs there, but but it's it changes the conversation. Uh, I know for me that's important. And then I think the the other thing is I've been reading more and more about biophilia. Uh, and, and biophilic design, uh, and this is something that you would learn if you were, if we were industrial designers, right? You, if you're, if you're forming things and creating physical objects, why not learn from the greatest teacher there is, nature? Uh, yeah. But interaction designers, which is you know, what I, uh, you know, the sort of peg that I would put myself into, is we've typically used the screen, right? There, and there are many different kinds of interaction. And I know for me, going out into nature and um, being in spaces where if I look around, I'm not able to tell whether or not I'm in, you know, 2020, the year 2020 or the year 20. Right, you know, right. Where I can really just sort of be in touch with, with nature and, and away from technology. That's, that's really critical for me and just my mental health. Thanks. Yeah, it's... Um... I love it from, and I and I I hadn't heard of biophilia, but in my mind, biomimicry, right? And yeah. but it's yeah that like, and I love it for other systems too. Is the idea how has blank solved this, uh, right? And in in some how has nature solved this? And well, nature solved it in many different ways, right? It's you can almost see how evolutionary paths were taken by the way the problem was framed, <laughs> and rewarded yeah. in 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 an insect community, in a dog community, in, in kind of a, uh, a forest ecosystem. Uh, but that, uh, one of the things that I just love that you, you mentioned that as well is, are you familiar with Neri Oxman? 
Mm-hmm. Over at MIT, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I just, um, this week in, in lecture, I also introduced the, uh, um, the creative Krebs cycle, right, of the kind of the art, art design science. What am I missing? Engineering, yeah, with those, those components and uh, kind of the applied, non-applied elements and how they can feed each other. And it's not required, but I did, encur- I did encourage my students to watch the, um, the Netflix abstract episode with her because I also lo- I, what I loved is um, the boundary crossing that she does in, in the, you know, those spaces. So I love that idea too of like to recharge, like getting out in nature and just actually getting away from the immediate work. Right. You know, it's, it's, you, you mentioned biomimicry and really that's probably what I should have said. Uh, I, I know for, um, for me, it's, it, it is bio, right. The yeah. love of nature. Yep. Biomimicry is what industrial designers use. And I'm, I'm thinking of, um, Janine Benyus, who's probably one of the most famous, um, scholars, researchers on biomimicry, she, she's, she has this wonderful statement that there's something like, it's one thing to learn about nature, it's another to learn from nature. And, and, yeah. and biomimicry is, is really about unlocking those, those lessons that nature has for us. Um, and it, it's, I think you and I have kind of talked about this a little bit, but I, I think it's really, everything kind of boils down to this curiosity that we have about the world. And how do we stay curious of, about the things around us? That there are so many instructive things uh, around us if we just look. And right, right. I, I, I find that technology, for myself, I don't want to speak for anybody else, but, but it tends to make me incurious and, and less curious about things. And I just want to, oh, what's the answer for that? Let me Google it. Okay, I got it. Let me move yeah. on. And not, not sort of, you know, mull around and, and explore it further in a way that's, that's rich and meaningful. It's, it's, it's very answer-based. I think it, that to me is feeling like a, a quote from Picasso. I believe, it was, uh, I believe it was Picasso that he doesn't like computers because they just give you answers. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, given, given his lifetime on, on when, you know, the computers he would be com- compared to what we're walking around in our, our, with the technology in our pockets every day. Uh, one of the questions I like to dig into is the notion of advice. So uh, in the, the area of advice, I'm stealing from Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist. So he says when we're giving advice, we're talking to our younger self. Uh, but with a lot of guests, I also like, I want to dig in. What is some good advice you've received? Uh, you, or maybe you haven't. <laughs> but what's some good advice maybe you've received that maybe you still unpack to this day? And then what's, what's advice that you wish you would have had earlier in your career? Yeah, the first thing that comes to mind is a, uh, a mentor telling me that my avocation, the thing that I love doing, doesn't necessarily have to be my vocation. And, and I bumped around with that for a while. And, and I'm very fortunate that, you know, I am a designer, I teach design, and my avocation, the thing that I would probably be doing regardless is also the thing that I love to. Um, yeah. But, you know, what, what, what I have found is that because my, the thing that I love doing is also the thing that I get paid to do, I never stop. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, what, that question you asked earlier about boundaries and recharging, 
is, is really critical. I, I, I have to be a little bit more deliberate than I have been, particularly in COVID, about putting boundaries on right. it's, it's a thing that I would be doing regardless. I have this natural curiosity about design. Um, you, you know, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell a story about my father who has had great influence over me. I, I remember as a young child, we had a, a Tandy 1000, right? A, a, from Radio Shack? From Radio Shack, yeah, yep. that's right. <laughs> uh, Tandy 1000, that, that was a computer that I learned from my brother who was, who was about seven years older. I remember learning from him uh, these commands, these DOS commands, and my father, was in the oil business and this was in the early 80s and in the early 80s the oil business tanked so my father was out of the job for a certain amount of time and he was home and i as a very you know young child i love this I, I, here's my dad i can hang out with him and i didn't really realize what was happening with, with the job and my mom ended up going and, and taking a, a very low paying job at the time so my dad, I guess, to keep himself sane and maybe make a good example on this, he started working on a book. And I remember, you know, my dad with books in front of him and like typing a computer, I would help him. And you remember the floppy drives that were there. I would help my father copy files from a floppy drive, uh, from, from the Tandy 1000 onto, onto a backup. And there was one day that my brother had shown me this command and I must have remembered it wrong. But you see where this is going. I ended up deleting a chapter uh, of my father's book. And only later would I realize just how significant this, this was to him. I mean, here was a guy who, you know, couldn't provide for his family in the way that he had in the past. And, you know, it, it truly affected him um, deeply. But I remember my father who, I'm, I'm from the islands, man. People from the islands, they know how to use the belt, right? And, and I know that's, that's not something that, that probably happens much in these days, but I remember realizing what happened as, as a kid in front of the dog's prompt whenever I was trying to locate the file. And I remember telling my father, you know, I've, I've deleted a, a chapter, which is a unique file there. And this look came over my father, you know, like anger. Uh, you know, it's like he went through the all five phases of, of <laughs> denial there. No, this isn't happening. I'm angry, uh, bargaining, yeah. you know, and, and acceptance. And, and my father ends up, he just puts his hand on my shoulder eventually. And he, and he tells me something. I, I, could, I knew it was measured, but he tells me, son, things can always be replaced. People can't. And, you know, I, I, I yeah. kind of choke up a little bit thinking right. about that. I remember very vividly my father, like the weight of his hand on my shoulder and just his words and me being terrified. And quite literally, had my father told me anything different, my life would be very different. And I think that those words from my father really shaped who I am today. That it's, it's about people. Um, and, you know, something that very much hurt him. <laughs> uh, you know, he was able to, to re respond rather than react. I ended up helping my father type up manuscripts, right? And so it, it was a unique way for me to bond with him in the long run. But, um, you know, it's kind of a trite story, but I, I remember it fondly. Yeah, no, that's, that's powerful. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, I can't help but think as I'm hearing that, why you became an interaction designer, because <laughs> DOS commands sucked and they were terrifying. <laughs> 
If only there was a GUI. <laughs> if there was, a, if there was a, a prompt for little Cassini that said, are you sure you want to delete this chapter? <laughs> but then you might, you wouldn't have had that transformative moment. <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, that's a great, great story. But I, I could, I, I had a pit in my stomach just as you were, as you were saying that too. <laughs> that kind of anxiety. But that's uh, what I love too about uh, the story about your father. There is that uh, kind of leading by example, that demonstrating, right? And so that's pretty cool, man. Uh, one thing on the biomimicry front, I should have talked about that before when you were talking about science. Uh, I talked to a friend who's also a microbiologist. She does um, work in the, um, uh, oh, why is the name escaping me right now? Um, I'll have to come back to it. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it was typically a child's disease, but now because children get older, uh, it's when they have trouble breathing, the mucus builds up in the lungs. Um, is it or? No. Ah. Uh, I'll have to I'll have to get but she also studies bacteria and and then what's interesting is as science is getting seen in nature there are hierarchies in bacterial colonies and there are different roles that are played in bacterial colonies and she even described like the tragedy of the commons where uh, bacterial co uh, colonies they need to find equilibrium right because if it goes too far well you kill your host right like so but different things where, and it just felt like kind of economics today as well, is where uh, there can be bad actors in the system that take advantage of the system. And so sometimes I don't know if we're, we're a little bit more than bacterial <laughs> elements <laughs> just at a larger scale. But I just, uh, no, I, I, you know, I love humans, human-centered design, yay, yay, yay. Uh, but it just is, it's, it's interesting when you're able to dig into these other topics a little bit more more deeply what are you reading these days what's what's keeping your interest so <laughs> i've been reading it for uh for, for quite some time I'm get the book so that i don't get it wrong but it's fritchov capra um and to to the point it's this it's a book called the systems view of life uh and it's it's a very deep book yeah fritchov capra has been doing um, uh, video sessions with uh, with individuals on this. I think he has an online course too. Um, but it it teaches it's teaching me how to think of the world from biological metaphors rather than uh, mechanical metaphors. That you know, in front of me are all mechanical things. Right. They they have gears and, and digital things, right? But, yeah. but you know, in biology and, and in nature, there's no waste. But in order to produce the MacBook in front of me, it was made from right a extruding of solids, plate of aluminum, and so it's a subtractive process. There's probably very little waste there, but there's a tremendous amount of energy that's probably wasted. There's a tremendous amount of gas that's used to ship all the materials from all over the world and then to ship it to me. Um, and one of the things that, that always strikes me whenever I read through this, this book is that, um, you know, in nature, there's no waste, which is just a, you know, could we get to that point as, as designers where, where nothing is wasted? Um, it's, it's a provocation that, that I, I don't have a solution for, yeah. but 
seems very timely given the problems that we have in the world right now. Yeah, it sounds sounds like a fascinating read. I think I'm going to have to to look look into that. Cassini, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on the podcast today. Uh, and I guess before we go, one other thing that uh, you you are one of the co-chairs for IEC 21, which is coming up. And uh, any anything you want to say about IEC 21? Absolutely, it's it's exciting. Uh, it's going to be the end of April, uh, 2021. It's going to be online. Uh, we're really looking at trying to make it affordable for anyone, uh, not just in the U.S. But, but across the world, to attend. The theme is called um, is around emergence. We would like to emerge from the present situation that the world's in, whether it be COVID or, or anything else, um, at a better place. And so we're we're hoping to see talks and workshops around uh, how can we emerge better uh, from from what we're in right now. That, that's great, and uh, I'm a big fan of the IAC. Uh, the conference and the community is fantastic, so anybody listening, please please uh, check, check them out online. And I know also uh, the, the call and submission for talks uh, is just, has gone live, so if you haven't participated, I think, uh, look, look at the process and always looking to get new voices in there. And, and let, me, let me just say one quick thing about new voices is that we absolutely want new voices. Uh, we really want to trouble the waters, as it were, for for the information architects, right? To to maybe think differently. We're about you know to 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 re be reductive about IA, right? It's about sort of putting names on things, as how somebody once described it to me. Um, but you know, what are ways that we, we might need to change that, and, and how might we do that? Is is a question that we'd like to answer, or, or at least begin to answer. Yeah. Well, thanks Thank again. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Such a pleasure having you here. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you.